we're going to pick up in our study of Mark at Mark chapter 5. Once again, looking at what Jesus Christ is doing. And the fact here, going from a demon-possessed man to a man in his right mind. What does it take? How does that work? And again... Welcome the visitors that are here today. You know, Ben's such an encouragement. Ben looked, came up to the front and he looked at me and he said, Look at all these people who came to hear you today. I said, They came for a baby. I, don't, I know what's going on. But it is exciting to be able to have new life in the church, to see God working, to see young parents that are dedicated to doing what Jesus Christ has for them to do. And though this story is about a demon-possessed man, the power in this story is the same power that's going to work in that family to do what they've just committed to do before God. So we're going to get an interesting look. We're going to get a unique look at the power and authority of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as we look at Mark chapter 5. If you'll read with me here, verses 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs. And no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain. For he was often bound with shackles and chains, but he re- wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was also crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? He replied, My name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, and let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it to the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed by the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, "'Go home to your friends.'" And tell them how much the Lord has done for you, and how he has had mercy on you. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Let's open the time and study the word in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this story. We thank you not only for the story, but for the truth that it represents. Pray that you might once again open our eyes, open our ears, that we might hear and that we might see this truth. I pray that the Spirit of God will work in our hearts and He will impress upon us the truths that are here and the way they need to work in our lives on a day-to-day basis. And Lord, most of all, we thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, with power and authority, demonstrated in such an awesome way in this passage. May we never lose the awe and the wonder of the Christ that we serve. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. As we get into this passage, we need to remember where we came from last week. The storm, the great storm on the Sea of Galilee is over. And you've got a group of disciples with Jesus Christ coming ashore on this boat. And they were probably exhausted, struggling in the storm. 
They were probably somewhat exhilarated thinking about what had happened. Jesus Christ, with two words, had stilled and calmed the storm immediately. And so as they're coming on shore, remember, they had come from a busy ministry in Capernaum. The crowds had been pressing on Jesus, and for that reason, he had told the disciples, let's get in the boat and go from this northern region over to the eastern side of the city, more of a desolate region than they were in, less populated, and a city that was, for the most part, or a region that, for the most part, was dominated by Gentiles. And the idea was they got into this boat figuring, now we can get some rest and relaxation. Their expectation when they got in the boat was, nice calm journey over to the east side, and a time of resting, and getting away from the crowds. And yet Jesus, as he's going there, is not thinking resting and getting away from the crowds. Now again, as you look at this, you need to remember what is on the hearts of the disciples as they pull these boats on shore. As they get to the eastern shore of Galilee, what is the question that was resounding in their minds at the end of chapter 4? Who then is this that can calm the seas? And the interesting thing is they're about to get the answer to their question from a most unlikely source. What they are about to experience on the shore of Galilee is something different than what they were planning on when they got there. And yet the power of Jesus Christ is going to be seen not only over nature, but over the demonic forces of his day. And it's an important thing to remember. We'll talk about why as we go through this. But as Jesus came across, as he gets with his disciples to the eastern side, Jesus is there for a divine appointment. Jesus is not surprised by what happens. It says they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. It was planned because Jesus had an appointment there. An appointment with One, probably two men, if we look at Matthew as well, but an appointment in this region that is primarily, again, as I said, Gentile people. And the appointment was with a man. Look at verses 2 through 5 again. Who is Jesus getting ready to meet with? It says, and when Jesus stepped out of the boat, and as only Mark can do, he says, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. This man lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore. And we read all about this man, and we're going to talk about him now for a moment, because as the disciples come for rest and relaxation, what is the first thing they encounter? Immediately, they get on shore, and here comes probably two men, if you read the story, the Matthew that goes with this. The man that's talked about in here, and he had a friend with him, also demon-possessed. And they come rushing down toward the shore as Jesus and the disciples get there in the boat. And this is no ordinary demonic man, demon-possessed man. Look at what he says about this man. This man is not only a man who has a problem with this unclean spirit, these demons that have possessed him, but look where he lives. It says the tombs. The tombs are where he he lived among the tombs. This demon-possessed guy, uh, Luke puts it this way. He had no home. He lived in the tombs. He lives among the dead, possessed by evil, demonic spirits that are tormenting him. Not only that, but he says this man was uncontrollable. Obviously, there was trouble. And again, we look at Luke, and Luke tells us in Luke chapter 8 that people couldn't even go by this region because this man was violent and he was powerful. So powerful, it tells us here, that they could not even bind him with chains. He would break the chains. He would shatter the shackles where he was tied up when they would try to tie him up in order to have safety in this region. And not only that, but that massive strength came from the demonic forces within him. And then if if all of that wasn't enough, the whole aura is also set by the fact that he cries out day and night. 
And again, the idea there in the Greek is almost the idea of howling. You know, have you ever been out in the country at night when the sun starts to go down? I remember the first time I did this. I'm sitting here in my tree stand waiting for deer that did not come by. And suddenly it gets to sunset. And as it starts to get dark, this piercing sound comes through the night, howling. And then answered by, and they felt like they were right there under my tree. And I'm thinking, where do I go now? And all of these coyotes start howling and gathering together. And they were probably looking for the deer I didn't shoot, so they they were disappointed. But as all that happened, it kind of, it went right through me the first time. It was kind of an eerie experience. And so to be anywhere near this man in the tombs. So he's in this cemetery, tomb type of area. Already got an aura of something that the Jews... Avoided, because touching a dead body would make them unclean. So there's this unclean area, and then on top of that, here he is howling out day and night. And finally, it says here that he cut himself with stones. And we look at other passages again, and this is the demonic tormenting of this man. He can't help himself. He's cutting himself with stones. And then, to add to the picture, Luke tells us here, for a long time he had worn no clothes, and he'd not lived in a house but among the tombs. The man was wearing no clothes. So as they pull up onto the shore, here comes this man, demon-possessed, crying out, howling, running toward the disciples. Can you imagine the disciples? You ever have a day where it just goes from bad to worse? They left these crowds. They hadn't been able to eat. They hadn't been able to get anything done. The crowds were pressing on them, so they got onto the Sea of Galilee expecting a calm trip, and what happens? They run into the worst storm of their life and they have to wake Jesus up. And Jesus calms the storm and then they get rebuked for a lack of faith. So now they're wondering, who is this? They're smarting from the rebuke. They really just want to be relaxing and taking advantage of getting away for a little bit. And as they pull up on shore, immediately, here comes this gentleman howling, not clothed at all, and demon-possessed, and just sends the creeps right through them. And here they are thinking, what next? And if they knew anything of the reputation, this is a man who was violent. People didn't pass by there because he would do violence to them. And so here comes this man, and you've got to wonder what was going through their minds. Now, Mark doesn't tell us a thing because he focuses on Jesus Christ. And as we focus on Jesus Christ, and as we think about this appointment that he has, it's an amazing thing because this encounter with Jesus Christ, you have this man who has been has known has a reputation for being violent, uncontrollable, and what happens when he comes to Christ? Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, and again, remember this guy's motives. He was up in the tombs. He'd watch for passers-by. If you passed by and he saw you, what was going to happen? You were getting a beating if he caught you. And so he sees this group come in the boats. And again, demons are not omniscient. They didn't know from afar necessarily who this was. It had just come ashore, but it looked like prey to them. And so here this man comes, running down the hill, demon-possessed, probably howling. And when he gets close enough, the demons realize it is whom? This is Jesus. They probably wanted to turn around and go back to where they'd come from, but it was too late. They had an appointment to keep. And so they come all the way in, and they fall down. And the idea there of falling down is the idea of prostrating before in order to worship. So they are laying down in front of Jesus. He is laying down in front of Jesus Christ demon-possessed, and here he is crying out with a loud voice. 
So all this is going on, and what does he cry out? What have you to do with us, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? What was Mark's purpose for writing this gospel again? We talk about it almost every week. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. It's the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And so all of these stories, all of these miracles, all of this teaching account that he gives us is pointing back to the fact that this is what it means for Jesus to be the Son of God. And you look at this, and this is an amazing picture. This man cannot be bound with chains. He cannot be bound with any kind of cords. He tears them apart, but at the sight of Jesus Christ, just his very presence, he falls down and is unable to do any violence to this group that's come in. And as he lays there, he looks and he acknowledges who he is. And isn't that interesting? What did the disciples just ask on the boat? Who who then is this who stills the seas? And here is this demon-possessed man crying out, this is Jesus Christ Son of the Most High God. Now, as we saw the demons earlier in this past, earlier in this book, they already had attested to the fact that he was Jesus, the Son of God. What do they add to this in this recounting? They call him Jesus, the Son of the Most High God. The reason that that is so important is that that word or that phrase, the Most High God, is a glorious title used through Scripture, but it's to accentuate God's absolute sovereignty over all other powers. Start in Genesis and go through the Old Testament and look for that phrase, the Most High God. And every time it's used, it's telling you that God is in control, that God is sovereign, that everyone has to be under his rule and lordship. And so here he comes, and as this demon-possessed man looks at Jesus Christ, he calls him not the Son of God only, but the Son of the Most High God. Why? It's adding to the picture of who Jesus Christ is for the disciples who are there. He is not only the Son of God, but the Most High God. This is the Sovereign Lord and Jesus Christ. And this is who the answer to who they had questioned. Who is this then? This is the very God, Sovereign God, with whom you have to do. And here is this man kind of picturing that for him. And on the top of that, he not only cries that out, but look at his request. He says, number one, what have you had to do with us? The reason for that is they're looking at Jesus Christ. They know he has authority. And the demons know even today that their days are numbered. They know how the book ends. They know what happens in Revelation. And they're cast into the lake of fire. And there are demons even now that have already been cast into the great, the, the bottomless pit waiting that day. And as these demons look at Jesus Christ, they're like, what do you have to do with us? It's like, aren't you coming a little bit early? And not only that, they say at the end of it, I adjure you by God. Isn't that interesting? You know what's so interesting about that phrase? When we look at the Greek, often when Jesus Christ commands demons to come out of people, you know what he says? In the Greek, the word is the same. I adjure you to come out of this man. And they're looking and saying, I am telling you, by God, you're here too early. And who are the demons to invoke God's authority and privilege on the Son of God? But they're desperate. They have no idea what they're going to do. And they have been in control up until this point. Nobody can control them. And they say, I adjure you by God. Do not torment me. And again, if you look at the companion passage of this in Luke chapter 8, what they mean by that is, don't send us to this pit confined from now until the point where we're going to be put into the lake of fire when we've been free up to this point. Free in this Gentile region to do what we want and to torment people. What are you doing with all this? And then we get to the point of the whole appointment. 
Jesus Christ, beginning in verse 8, For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Now when Jesus commanded spirits to come out, how long did it take? Again, Mark is the, 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 the king of immediately. And usually it happens immediately. It's a little bit delayed here. Why does God allow this to be a little bit delayed? Is Jesus looking and saying, coming out and wondering why they haven't? No, what Jesus is doing is he's about to teach this lesson not only to his disciples. He's about to teach a lesson not only to the demon-possessed man who's going to remember this for the rest of his life. And we're going to see that as we get to the end of this passage. But even for all those who are around to see, there's, there's these herdsmen, these, these pig herdsmen who evidently are somewhat privy to this as we read over this and find at the end of the passage that they're going to share this story. And so what happens is Jesus gives them the time to have this conversation. And Jesus asks them, what is your name? Again, it's interesting with the exchange that's happening here. When Jesus comes, the demons right away say, what? What do you have to do with us? They ask his name. They know who he is. Jesus, son of the most high God. And again, many people who look at this think, well, this is because when you tried to cast out demons, if you knew the name of the one that you were dealing with, it gave you a special power and authority over them. Almost like the demons are grasping for whatever they can do. We've got your name. Your Jesus is the most high. And Jesus looks at them and returns with, well, what's your name? And he says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And we begin to see why Jesus has delayed the casting out for just a moment. Because as folks are going to learn this story, as the disciples are going to see what's happening, he's cast out demons before, is he not? Have we ever seen him cast out thousands of demons from one man before? Jesus Christ is coming against the very authority and power of the devil. And there's thousands of demons in this man who are uncontrollable. And the idea of legion is an interesting thing. Again, I don't know that it's really giving you exactly how many. I mean, theoretically, there could be as many as 6,000 people in a legion. But the idea with that name legion is there are thousands of us here. And what did a legion do? A legion of Roman soldiers, 6,000 men, they all acted in accord for one goal. And here you've got thousands of demons possessing this man, terrorizing this territory with their demonic power and influence, acting in accord, and Jesus, one man. But the Son of the Most High God is standing before them, and they kneel before him. It's to show his power and authority as he goes through this, and he continues... He's confronted by this army of demons. And again, to illustrate it, they've broken bonds. They've terrorized people. Now they tell Jesus, we are legion. And for someone else coming to deal with them, suddenly that would bring fear and trembling, thinking, how many demons am I dealing with? How does, how does the story end? And he begged him. Who begged him? The demonic possessed man, actually the demons using his voice, begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Who's in control? Jesus is in control of this whole scene. Do the demons know who's in control? This is probably the first time since they possessed this demon possessed man that they were not in control. And as they look at Jesus, they beg him and say, please don't send us out of this country. And again, Luke chapter 8, verse 31 adds, they begged him not to to command them to depart into the abyss. 
You know, why do they need to stay in this Gentile area of country? Well, probably they're just saying, please don't send us to the abyss. Send us any place but there. You know, let us stay. Let us be a part of what we've been doing here. Let us be a part of the false religion and the pagan ideas that are here in this Gentile region. And they beg Jesus not to send them to this abyss. And what does Jesus do? Well, we see now the last part of the appointment. It involves a great herd of pigs. Look at verse 11. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, Send us to the pigs, let us enter them. Can you imagine? How many demonic pigs do you know? This has got to be a new series in history, but they are grasping for anything but being thrown into the abyss. And they see these pigs, and they say, Lord, send us to these pigs. And what does it say Jesus did? So he gave them permission. And what does that tell us? Jesus Christ is in control. Did the disciples learn this lesson? You remember John in 1 John chapter 4? Was there demonic things going on in, in the empire of Rome that impacted John and the Christians of his day? All kinds of things. And John looks and he tells people in John chapter 4, Remember, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Do you think John remembered this? Remember the day that thousands and thousands of demons at the word of Jesus Christ were given permission to go into pigs. And so this is taking place and we see there he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out. Jesus is done. It's time for them to leave. He doesn't have to ask them again. They come out and they go immediately into these pigs. And I'm sorry if you're a pig lover, but what happens next, kind of, we, we kind of wonder, well, why would he do this? Because he's the sovereign God, and he can do whatever he wishes. But there's, there's an illustration even in this. It says, The unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and downward into the sea. And they drowned in the sea. So what happens to these pigs? You know, these pigs are, do you think the herdsmen of the pigs had to be standing by the sea every day, keeping them from going in and drowning? This is not normal activity for pigs. Okay, they'll do a lot of crazy things, but they don't drown themselves. And as these demons possess these pigs, and at least 2,000, and many think that's maybe how many demons were inside the man, because that's how many went into the pigs, we don't know. It's not the point of the story. The point of the story is that there's thousands of demons called out of this man, and in order to show just the deadly force that Jesus was dealing with, these pigs go mad, and they run down, and they drown themselves. And so all of this is taking place, and the Bible tells us once we see that, that the herdsmen see this, and they react to it. We're going to see not only this divine appointment, but a very disappointing appeal from the people that have witnessed this. If you were a witness to this demonic man who's been terrorizing you, you know, do you think the swine herdsmen were having a great time with this guy howling in the distance? knowing that if they got too close, that he's a violent man and that there could be problems, you would think they would, number one, be relieved. Number two, you would think that they would be full of gratitude and even worship because this is Jesus Christ who did what none of them could do. Had they tried to deal with the situation, they put him into chains. They chained him up and he just broke the chains. They couldn't control this man. And Jesus, with a word, resolves the whole situation. And it tells us here, beginning in verse 15, the herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And the people came to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man. And never miss this. 
The one who had been legion sitting there clothed in his right mind. And they were afraid. Why? As long as they'd known this man, he was running around unclothed, howling, beating on people, violent. And they come and they see him with Jesus and he's not violent. He's not howling. He's sitting there. He's fully clothed. He's in his right mind. Time with Jesus had changed him. He'd been totally changed. And so they looked at this and they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Think about again what had just happened in the boat not too long before. Huge storm. Jesus calms the storm. Two words, peace, be still. Two Greek words. And he does that and the whole storm just smooth. No wind, no waves. And the disciples were not only amazed, but they were They're afraid. They realize we are standing in the presence of a powerful God. Now these people are looking and they see this man who used to be demon-possessed and howling and living in the tombs and uncontrollable, and now he's sitting there calmly, clothed, in his right mind. And they're afraid because of the power of Jesus Christ displayed in that man. And their fear, which should have led them to worship, does what? Look at what they do here. It says, and they began to beg Jesus. To beg Jesus to do what? To heal them? No. To teach them? No. To leave. Why would they beg Jesus to leave? Look back at verse 16. And when they had been seen, they described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man, the power of this man, and then... What does Mark add to the story? It's something that Luke doesn't add to his story. They talk to him about what happened to the demon-possessed man and what happened to the pigs. 2,000 pigs. Remember, and often people get caught up in this story and they're like, how could there be 2,000 pigs in Israel? This area was Gentile-dominated. They ate pork. They ate bacon. Come on, be honest, how many of you like Bacon. You're not American if you don't like bacon. Bacon goes good on almost anything. And, there, and that's 2,000 of them have been destroyed in a moment's notice. And not only were they afraid, they were probably a little bit annoyed. And they begged Jesus to leave. So in the midst of all this story, when you would have expected to see a great revival take place among the Gentiles, instead, they loved their pigs too much to even think about the Savior. And then we get... To the last picture here, because God has a plan, a disciple's assignment. Look at verse 18. It says, As he was getting into the boat, that's Jesus, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. Now, this is an interesting phrase. Jesus has been there. This demonic possessed man has been freed. And when he's sitting there clothed and in his right mind, how did he know he was in his right mind? He was probably sitting there talking with Jesus as they got. Can you imagine? The one who just sets you free from thousands of demons who have been tormenting you for who knows how long. We don't, we don't have that information in the story. But the man is sitting there and wonder about the grace and the mercy of God that just touched him. That Jesus Christ left Capernaum and went all the way across the Sea of Galilee to teach his disciples a lesson, but to minister to this man, possibly a Gentile man, probably a Gentile man in this region. And so as he ministers to this man and sees Jesus being asked to leave, he goes to him and he just doesn't ask him. What does the verse say? 
He begs him, Lord, don't leave me here. Lord, I want to be with you. And that phrase again in the Greek, being with him, is the same phrase from chapter 3 where it says Jesus called the 12 aside to be with him, to be instructed by him, to listen to him, to become like him. And this man has been so changed, he looks at Jesus Christ and he says, I want to be with the 12. I want to be with you. Isn't that a wonderful request? Is there anything wrong with that request? That's where our heart ought to be. Again, if you know Jesus Christ today and you don't long to be with him in that way, something's wrong. And so here's this man saying, don't leave me here. Don't leave me with these ungrateful people. Take me with you. You've changed my life. Now let me be with you. And Jesus has a divine appointment for this man as well. He looks at him and he says he did not permit him. Can you imagine in the depths of this man's heart? I've been set free. This is the Son of God, the Savior. Please take me with you. I want to go. And what are you expecting? Jesus is going to say, all right, get in the boat. And Jesus looks and says, no, you can't go. You ever have wonderful ideas and things you were going to do for the Lord, and the Lord shuts the door and says, no, you can't go. If he ever does that, he does that because he's got someplace else for you to be. And he looks at this man and says, no, you can't go, but I want you to go home. I want you to go to your friends. And I want you to tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. He looks at this man and says, you know that throughout this whole region, you have a reputation. People know what you were. Doesn't that affect us sometimes as well? You ever think about what you were before Christ? The sin that you lived in? And we get embarrassed about it sometimes. And sometimes we, we try to skirt around it and we don't want to talk about it. And Jesus looks at this man and says, your powerful testimony is not what you were by telling people what you were, that I touched your life and what you, what your life and what you are now. How I changed your life. And the interesting thing about that is, if you know Jesus Christ, you've got the same story. Now, you may not have been possessed by thousands and thousands of demons. But you were lost in sin. You didn't have what you needed in your relationship with God. And Jesus Christ, when he died for you on Calvary, when he shed his blood, when you put your faith and trust in him, hopefully that that will be the thing if you actually do that, that changes your life. And you've got a testimony. And look who Jesus sends him to. He says, go where? Go home. Go home. Go home and tell people what Jesus Christ has done for you. And that's where evangelism needs to start. It needs to start in our homes. It needs to start in the neighborhoods we live in. It needs to start here. And I look at that and I think so many of us miss the boat there. If I told you that this summer we're going to have a missions trip over to West Africa, how many people want to go with me? People get excited about that. A trip to West Africa. And we're going to go over there and we're going to help the missionaries share the gospel. And people get excited about that. And Jesus Christ didn't look at this man and say, I want you to go over to Ethiopia and start sharing the gospel. Where did he send him first? He said, go home. Tell your family. Tell your friends what Jesus Christ has done for you. And God had a purpose for that. We're going to see that in just a moment. But he said, go tell the people who know you the best that God has changed your life. That's That's where evangelism needs to start. That's the place we often shy away from it. Well, what will it do in my family situation if I share Christ with my unsaved family? I'll be ostracized. 
I'll be the crazy person in the family. They'll talk about me behind my back. Things won't go well. And Jesus looked at this man. He says, you've already got a bad reputation, so don't worry about your reputation. Tell them about me. Tell them how I changed your life. And so often, again, we look at the opportunities to evangelize, and we think, well, I don't know what to say. I don't know everything I need to know about this book. You ought to know what God did for you, how he changed your life. And that's the place to start. Jesus didn't tell him to go take out the Talmud and and share with them all these things. He said, I want you to share one thing with people. Share what I have done for you and the mercy that I gave you. Aren't you glad for God's mercy? God's mercy, we don't get what we deserve. Because contrary to what they'll tell you out there, we're not all good people. Before we come to Christ, we are all depraved people. We are wicked people and we are headed to hell no matter how many good works you try to do. And God in his mercy, instead of giving us hell, the place that these demons are saying, don't send us there now. Give us a break. The place that was prepared for the devil and his angels, but if you don't know Christ, you're headed there. Instead of going there, Jesus Christ took upon him the iniquity, the sin of us all, and died for us on Calvary. That's mercy. Look in the mirror when you get home. Do you see somebody who deserved God's love? We ought to stand amazed at God's grace and God's mercy. And not only stand amazed, but his whole purpose in that for us is to go tell people about it. Tell people what God has done for you. Don't be ashamed of it. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this demon-possessed man walking into town in a few days? What are people going to think? What did they do? If he had come to town earlier, what would they do? They'd slam the doors. They'd go, hi, this is a violent man. This is a demon-possessed man. They're waiting for him to howl and scream. And suddenly he's totally changed. And when you sit down with him, he says, Jesus Christ changed my life. What a testimony. Can you share that testimony? He said, well, I'm not quite sure how. That's why we're doing what we're doing on Wednesday nights. You want help? Let's take a few simple lessons out of, the, out of the gospel of Mark. This is how you can share the gospel, but it starts with your own testimony. What did Jesus Christ do for you? And he goes on here and says, this is what happened. Now, again, put yourself in the shoes of this man who had just been freed from all these demons. He wanted to go with Jesus. And Jesus said, no, I want you to do this instead. Did he go back to the tombs and pout? Did he get angry or bitter with God because, look, God, I had this plan and it was a great plan and you just did, you didn't get on board with it. Now look what happens in verse 20. It says, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis these ten cities, these ten Gentile cities predominantly, how much Jesus had done for him and everyone marveled because they knew what he used to be. And they saw that he was changed. That's why if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. God does that, and he does that so that he might be glorified. And it's a way, as in Matthew chapter 6, that your light can shine before men. And Jesus is telling this man, take that light and shine. And, And you look at this and you say, well, wouldn't it have been better for him to spend time personally with Jesus? Well, we won't take the time now because we're going to get there in a few weeks. But when we get to Mark chapter 7, Jesus comes back to this region. He comes back to the same region where they begged him to leave. And we're going to find that when they do that, a massive crowd comes to hear him teach, motivated, motivated by a man who'd come through and shared the great things that God had done for him. God wants to use your life and mine to make a difference. The question is, will we share the goodness of God? Will we share what God has done for us, the mercy that he has for us? That's what he intends for us to do. 
let your light so shine before men. You say, I wasn't demon-possessed. No, but the same Jesus Christ, with the authority to cast out those demons one day, would stand before his disciples, ready to ascend. And before he did, he reminded them one last time of who he was. He said, all authority is given to me in heaven and in earth. You think they remembered the sea being calmed when he said that? You think they remembered a demonic man with over a thousand demons, terrorizing a whole region, and Jesus Christ set him free. He said, with that authority, this is what I want you to do. Go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to observe all things, even as I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. The authority is mine. The power is mine. But the presence is mine. I'll be with you. You're not going alone. And the question is now, will we be as obedient as that man was? He infected a whole region for Jesus Christ so that Shortly after this story, when, they, when Jesus came back, they came to hear him because they marveled at what Christ had done for him. What has Christ done for you? Are you willing to share the story that Jesus Christ might be glorified and that others will come to him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for a very familiar story, but often we miss the point. It is a story about who Jesus Christ is. It's a story about the authority and the power and the majesty of our Savior. But Lord, it's also a story about how our life can be impacted as we come to Jesus Christ and what we need to do following that. God, I pray that you'll help us to be as faithful as this man. We don't even know his name. Through all this story, you never give us his name, but you do give us his his assignment. He was to go and proclaim the great things that Jesus Christ had done for him. God, may we go in the same way, not looking for a great name, not looking for recognition, but looking to glorify our Savior as we share the mercy and the great things that you've done for us as well. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.